Welcome to Improv Interview. I'm Margot Escott, a licensed clinical social worker in practice here in Naples, Florida, and also an improv teacher and occasionally player. Improv Interviews is about different folks around the world who are using improvisational theater exercises and games for different issues, not just about performing, but working with diverse populations. And Lucy Alana, the founder of the Yes and Brain Company, is an incredible therapist, herself a social worker, who is doing spectacular work using improv with a diverse clientele, neurodivergent clientele, and she also trains educators, helping professionals, and also is a circus artist and has special programs for them as well. So Lucy, hi. Hello. It's good to see you. And let's start right in about where are you right now? What's going on in your life right now? Yeah, so I'm in Montreal uh, right now, and I do a couple of different things overall. I'd say that my three kind of primary domains are providing regular kind of mainstream therapy, like what people think of when they think of therapy, um, and then also providing circus-based therapeutic intervention and kind of frameworks and supports and improv-based work as well. Uh, so yeah, so I teach circus, I teach regular mainstream improv, and then also run some specialized improv theater programming. Like I'm running a improv group right now for uh, adults who identify with anxiety. Um, I've previously run groups in partial psychiatric hospitalization programs and eating disorder clinics. Uh, founded a program in Austin that I still do clinical consultation for because I'm no longer there, but ran that for many years. Um, yeah, and then I'm, go back every summer to Indiana to run Camp Yes And. Um, yeah, and I'm about to have my Connect Improv curriculum launch and available for per purchase as well this year. So that's exciting. So I'm working on all of those pieces. And yeah. Well, now the uh, publication, when is that coming out? The so you you cut out there for just one second. Oh, the publication you're working on. Yeah, so it should be out very soon. Some of the we're waiting on some of the logistics. I'm working through Indiana University, um, and so some of the logistics of you know coordinating all the the hoops to jump through are coming to a close. So as soon as I know the exact date, I'll definitely make that public. But it should be very soon. Oh, that's exciting. This fall. Um, yeah. And that's going to be for therapists or other people working with neurodiverse clients? For really anybody who's interested in it. Um, generally, the way that I design and think about any curriculum that I'm doing is kind of structured within the ideas of scaffolding, within the ideas of universal design. And so really the way that I approach any group I'm working with is the same in terms of the overall framework of assessing what is it that this group needs? How can I provide it to them? Where are they right now? Where do I want to get them going? How can I sort of scaffold those steps backwards? So even though this curriculum will include some specific information that addresses perhaps challenges you might run into if you didn't, if you were working with just a mainstream population, challenges you wouldn't face, really all of it will be quite useful for the average person when it comes to learning how to adapt and adjust things. So it could even just be a random person who wants to have a list of games and activities for their troop or what, you know, kind of anything and everyone really. 
Oh, that's brilliant. And let me ask you a little bit more about Camp Yes And, because mm -hmm. I think it's a fantastic operation that got out there with Jim out in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit more about Camp Yes And. Yeah, uh, Camp Yes And is great. It is one of my, it's some of my favorite weeks of the year. Uh, so basically what happens is that I would say that it has kind of a dual focus in the mornings we have the kind of helping professionals and educators with us so we end up with a pretty wide range we get a lot of speech language pathologists we get therapists social workers um, regular mainstream educators special education teachers etc so kind of anybody in that domain sometimes we'll get theater teachers as well who want to expand their programming to be more inclusive and jim and i train them in the morning for all the morning and then we have a lunch break and then a group of autistic teens come in the afternoon to experience a camp an improv based camp and part of what's unique about it is i mean a lot of different things but the morning educators are also there in the afternoon which means that versus sometimes i think when you go to a traditional training and you practice things just with the other adults that are there and everyone you know reflects like oh this is so great uh there are often things that you encounter putting things into action with actual youth that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate or wouldn't know how to manage. And so having the opportunity to give them a chance to explore and participate and see this run in real life with real students rather than just kind of hypothesizing about like, oh, how could I implement this in my own setting when I'm back? Um, so I find that it gives a really nice kind of experiential element Oh yeah, that's really important. And how long does the camp run? Is it just one week in the summer or is it several weeks? Just one week? Yeah, so the camp runs for one week, but now we're running three of them. So there's several different weeks, but they each run for one week. Oh, that's yeah. Beautiful. And how many teens are in the classes? It varies a little bit. I would say somewhere around like 10 to 11 would be a pretty standard group and same for the adults so it's a it's a good it's a good size and there's lots of time to get to know each other and build relationships and you know I'll say too that one of the things that I think is really unique and interesting about this as well besides just giving educators this information to take where they go a lot of times what we'll find is that as people are becoming new improvisers they often really envy and come to understand and appreciate the students that we're working with in a new way. So I think a lot of times people come thinking, oh, I'm going to get a bunch of skills that I can take back to my workplace. And, and that is true. But I also think that some of what happens is reframing and coming to understand the students that we're working with in a different way that they did than they did before. Um, and I think that that's one of the kind of really unique gifts is sort of breaking down some of these expectations that existed in advance and restructuring that. Now, let's just talk about the word neurodivergent um, because there's several um, issues, disorders that uh, children and teens and adults suffer from. And we use the word autism, but there's other disorders that might fit into those groups. Now, do you look for a specific autistic diagnosis, number one, and uh, number two, let's talk about neurodivergency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think in general, when I'm looking at things that I'm running, I'm far more interested in someone being a fit rather than matching a diagnostic label. So if someone is going to fit in with whatever group it is that is happening, then that works for me. Because I think 
I think diagnoses have an important role in professionals communicating, but are inherently flawed and have, there's a lot of issues kind of in, in the way that diagnoses are used, which is a whole lot to unpack. Um, yeah, so I, overall, I'm far more interested in, is your child going to fit in this group? Is this a place where they're going to get something out of it? Are they going to be able to find meaning and enjoy their participation? Like, is this something that is right for them? Um, far more than I'm interested in, you know, does your kid have this diagnosis or that? Um, and I think for, for me, that's some of what I really like the idea of neurodiversity in two reasons. Like one, I think that it catches sort of a wider range of just like neurodiversity, like literally, literally translates to diversity in our neurology. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate that sort of just this piece of that coming to recognize and represent like, oh, my brain works differently. I'm neurodiverse. And like, that is what that means. Um, and I really, you know, I think if we look at sort of the, the history of the movement, you know, I mean, neurodiversity is a neologism that came to be, I think, in the late 90s. And an Australian sociologist used it in a paper and then uh, someone else used it in a newspaper article. And I think it sort of gained momentum from there. Um, but I really like this idea of moving away from the pathology model. So moving out of you're normal, you're not normal. These are the two sort of divisions that we have and into this idea that within any subsection of humanity, there's going to be neurological diversity inherently because there should be. And that's what makes sense if we just look statistically at how, how, th how anything would kind of spread out. Um, yeah, so I just, I like moving out of that pathology model. I appreciate that it is a term that has been kind of claimed and used by anyone who feels kind of pride in recognizing diversity. Um, yeah, and naturally with all kind of terms and diagnoses, I'll always defer and use whatever it is that someone else wants for themselves. So, yeah. Terrific. And um, so do you work with younger children as well? Or you have groups uh, running at all where you work with younger children? Yeah, I've worked with younger kids. Right now, I don't have any younger improv groups happening like at this exact moment. But um, the Building Connections program in Austin that I founded and ran for many years, six or so, um, worked with kids of pretty much all ages. Like we had specific classes for youth who youth with autism or any kind of neurodiversity that fit within that range that we had kind of a preteen bunch, a teen bunch, a young adult bunch sort of divided out depending on what ages we were getting. Um, and then as well started programming in a homeless shelter and kids there were really of all ages. Technically we had the age cap for that class set at five because it was a mixed age group of like five to any age kid that was there. Um, but we would periodically get the younger siblings who would show up anyway. Um, right. yeah, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I've worked with kids of all ages. And so it is really inclusive. I love that term, inclusive as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the therapeutic benefits of improvisation that you've seen and witnessed and how, sure. how it's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think with a lot of kind of all of the expressive arts that I work with in 
it really feels like some of the biggest benefits are having this safe, supportive structure to sort of progressively move you into a place of skill expansion. So there's always, and I think it may depend some of, of course, of where you take improv and how it's structured and what that is. But, you know, I know for me teaching, for example, I'm always going to meet someone where they are. So if someone, you know, wants to sit and just watch what's happening because they're not ready to do the thing yet. Okay, that's fine. You can do that. If someone's ready to stand in the circle but isn't ready to do whatever the thing is, okay, that's also fine. Um, and so providing sort of these progressive steps for people to both exist in that shared collective space within a support structure of, you know, look, we, we want you to participate because we think you're great and you have something to offer. And also we respect your, your self-determination and whenever you're ready to do this. And I think that there's something to that, to having that space where people get to navigate and move through their own kind of process and have that time and space. And, and I think ultimately, if you look at a lot of the fundamentals of improv, a lot of them are based around and built around connection and being able to help people build, like, how do you create something meaningful with another person? How do you get and remain present? How do you attune? How do you flexibly respond? How do you handle it when something that you were planning to go one way doesn't go that way and goes a different way? Like, how do you, you know, and I think that those are all fundamental mechanisms that make us better at moving through the world. And so I think as we practice those pieces, we get to take that with us. And the level of self-confidence from when a student starts to when they complete is often remarkable. We were on um, classes that are maybe 12 week long. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of progress in self-confidence and even things like focused attention, mm -hmm. eye contact. Mm -hmm. Those are more physical than therapeutic, but mm -hmm. the, sense of, the sense of confidence from being able to solve some of the problems we've mm -hmm. in these types of games. Absolutely. Do, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'd say even with concrete changes, like maintaining focus or attention or being able to kind of activate or use eye contact in the way that someone wants to versus whatever their default is or whatever, I think is also really valuable because I think as we give people tools that they can use to find more success moving through the world, that is inherently something that builds self-esteem, that builds kind of self-confidence and yeah, so I think there's a lot there. And I think the yes and concept plays a lot into that as well. Can you explain mm -hmm. yes and in case some of my newer listeners aren't familiar with what yes and is in the company's yes and brain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> yes and uh, is an idea that a lot of people would consider core to improv. People come in with different focuses of different kinds of things. But the basic idea is that if someone is adding a piece of information to a scene, it works well when the other person says yes in, by way of accepting that offer or information. It doesn't mean that they have to necessarily even agree with what the offer is, but they want to acknowledge that that is the true offer that's been made. Uh, and then they want to end by adding something on to that. Um, so I like to imagine a lot the yes and cycle, and I know that this is auditory, so just imagine in your brain uh, what this looks like, but I imagine uh, at the top of the circle, somebody makes an offer, there's an arrow next, somebody has to be aware enough to accept that offer, so an offer happens, 
Second person needs to be aware to even pick up on that that has happened. Next thing that needs to happen is we need to acknowledge the offer. So we need to acknowledge, yes, I see that that offer that you just made. I am acknowledging that that is there. And then someone needs to next add on something, which brings us back to the offer. And then we go around the cycle again and again, forever and ever. We have awareness, you acknowledge it, you accept it, you add to it, you acknowledge, offer awareness, accept, acknowledge, etc. Yeah. I uh, recently completed teaching two uh, courses for anxiety with improv. One was for adults and one was for teens. And it's always interesting to me, even when I'm explaining, maybe giving examples, having them practice, yes, and how many folks want to go into no or deny right away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's human nature or not to want to reject an idea from somebody else, or maybe the student's feeling like I'm going to be different with this, but it's an interesting thing. I see it change, of course, mm-hmm. over the course of the classes, but, and also getting into arguments. People like to get into arguments, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah. It's really common. And, and I think it's kind of rooted in a couple of different things. Like I think, I think inherently when we are putting ourselves on stage, there is there's something that's uncomfortable about that. Like we're being present, we're being vulnerable. And I think it's in our natural instinct to want to feel back in control of whatever's happening and to feel like, okay, I've got this, I know what's going to happen. And it can feel safer to sort of shoot something down than to leave yourself open in that presence. So I think that that happens a lot. And, uh, and I definitely see two newer improvisers. It's easy to be in your head because when we're not used to just being present and co-creating we're used to generating content and generating the right content, whatever we think that means, which then when we're in our head thinking like, okay, what do I need to add? That's like the good thing, the funny thing, the best thing, whatever, when really it's like, that's not how this works. But initially, of course, that's where we start because that's reflective of what we do most of the time in our lives. That's why I love teaching one word story in the beginning because Mm -hmm. it really illustrates how much the student wants to control the story. It sure happened to me when I first learned it. Mm -hmm. They said the wrong word or I want that person to say that word and trying to direct it Mm -hmm. and script for it rather than just collaborate with the word you last heard. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good example. Can you think of any games that help with a yes and? I mean, every game, really. Uh, I'm on the spot with that one. I know there's a lot. No, I mean, I mean, I can list many. Like, I mean, I, I really do think that most, I, I mean, I think it would be honestly harder to find a game that doesn't teach yes and in improv than does. Like, maybe not as directly. Um, but even something as simple as, like, I'm a tree. You know, somebody throws out I'm a tree. They mime that. Someone else adds in what goes with that. Someone else adds in something that goes with that. You can add however many you want. The person who started picks one thing to leave behind uh, from there. And I think that that's a nice way to just start building simple ideas before even getting into kind of scenic place. But, but yeah, really, really pretty much every game that I can think of has teaches some discrete component of yes and. So and when our students say something that has no... Uh, no connection to the tree at all. Let's just use the tree one. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> accept that wholeheartedly uh, as a teacher and uh, to accept whatever they've given us. Not, oh, that doesn't belong in that tree with that mm-hmm. bark or whatever that's going around, but find something that you can also yes and to the student when they do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, 
I think that there's, it's an interesting thing to figure out like, what is, what is the place that, what is the connection that someone else was seeing? And, and, it, and was there a connection? Because I think that there are times that a student may come out with the random thing that's just their interest or the thing that they were thinking about that isn't connected. Um, and that's worth kind of exploring and looking at kind of the circle of expectations and what we'd expect to show up there. And other times there may be a connection that really is solid that I just can't see, at which point I still want to understand what it is that they're thinking so that I can help them figure out how to communicate that more clearly to other people as well. Um, and I will also play a version of discordant I'm a tree where on once we get into kind of jump and justifying later, uh, where someone adds something and someone else adds something that intentionally doesn't fit on purpose, like that seems totally disconnected. And then a third person comes in to describe and say how they were connected. So they're making up, you know, whatever that is. So someone says, I'm a tree. Uh, somebody else says, you know, I'm a rocket ship on the moon. And then the third person has to describe how those things are actually linked so they could step in and say, you know, I'm an astronaut looking through binoculars at the tree by my house or whatever um, they want to say. And that can be an interesting way as well. Like sometimes when, when students are really struggling with doing the yes anding or kind of going outside of that circle of expectations, I do find that it's sometimes helpful to kind of prescribe a really extreme version of what it is that they keep leaning into. And then that can be a nice way to like bring it back, like give them like, here's the thing you want to be doing. Let's do it. And now let's come on back to this other situation. I love it. I think that's terrific. So how did you get interested in working with this? I'll use the word population this group of kids, what, have, what was your past experience that made you kind of drawn to working with these kids? Well, I, I mean, I guess, I feel like I work with a little bit of everyone. You know, like I, I do, I would say my two areas of focus are trauma and neurodivergence. And, but I, but I work with everybody kind of of all, all walks of life and all backgrounds. Um, and I would say that some of some of it has just kind of uh, looking back like a beautiful happenstance piece of life of like, I couldn't have planned things working as well as they did. Um, so I have an undergraduate degree in creative advertising, which, you know, is totally random. Um, yeah. And when I was in uh, school in my undergrad, I was working at a children's shelter and for kids who were in foster care in between placements or who had just been removed from their homes and were awaiting placements. And I started volunteering there my freshman year of college and then I got hired as a staff member and then I became a shift supervisor and then I ran the summer program and uh, things just kind of unfolded from there. Um, and I really like working with that population and it's a population that I feel really passionately about. Uh, I was involved in child welfare system myself when I was younger, uh, which is the fancy way of saying foster care involvement, uh, which really makes the, that work kind of particularly special and important to me. Um, and then with autism, I kind of got involved, I mean, I think two things, like one, there are neurodiverse people everywhere. So it's like all of us are working with people who are neurodiverse, whether or not we think we are, because that's how the world is. Um, but I did uh, some in-home therapy work uh, with a child who had kind of moderate autism. And 
really enjoyed that work. And, and it's interesting because people often remark that the differences between autism and trauma are really significant. Like, how did you end up with both of those two? But I'll really say that I think that there are a lot more similarities than differences, like just in kind of looking at and understanding, like, what are the things that are driving the way that we move through the world? Like, what does it mean to live in a place where you don't quite fit in all of the ways or you feel like that outlier? Like, what does it mean? You know, like, I, I feel like there are, there are more similarities than not in a lot of ways, even though it can look really, it, even when it looks really different, I think that there's a lot of kind of rooted similarity there. Um, yeah, so it just kind of started there. And then when I was in, after I finished therapy school and had my master's, I worked for in a residential treatment center for um, kids largely who were neurodiverse and also struggling with kind of copious amounts of other things. Um, so I was on a neurobehavioral adolescent boys unit. And that's where I really started implementing improv in a therapeutic capacity. So I'd been teaching already kind of mainstream adult classes and I'd, you know, done improv myself and of course had the like realizations that people have about like, this is like real life. Wow. Um, yeah. And I ran a daily group on the neurobehavioral unit with the teen guys uh, who I really like, like teenage boys are some of my very favorite people. Um, yeah. And I started it implementing and bringing improv into those groups and it was really successful. And so, um, yeah, so that became kind of the place of like, oh, we should launch an actual theater program that is focused around this and kind of expand that as it goes. So yeah, things have just kind of unfolded as they have. Fantastic. So you were interested in theater or circus first? You're an um, aerialist, right? Correct. An aerialist? Yeah, I'm an aerialist. Static trapeze is my primary discipline. Um, I started theater when I was a lot younger. Um, so I did theater in school growing up in middle school and in high school um so that came first like i was later to circus compared to when a lot of people come to circus but still you know you can come to circus at any time um yeah so i did theater first and yeah i guess things kind of unfolded i was working full-time jobs kind of in the therapy realm with youth generally in kind of both or the kind of trauma neurodiverse population and um yeah i started running the program at the hideout and wanting to make that more sustainable and we we're working with foster youth and going into residential treatment centers and i was teaching a weekly class at the homeless shelter and teaching weekly classes for different age groups um, of autistic preteens teens and young adults and uh, you know, working a lot of hours and then, yeah, somewhere along that way, picked up circus and then started teaching circus after I did more years of practicing and becoming a trainer and then started running a youth program and, um, yeah, ultimately quit my secure day job to try to make all of these other things sustainable. Um, yeah. And you did it. And you yeah. Did it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty well. I think so. Yeah, yeah, you're a great job. It's really remarkable. Not remarkable. You have a lot of brilliance to you and a lot of determination. And, you know, we're going to be linking to your website and you're, you write fantastic blogs. I think there's oh, one you. out today regarding circus. Yeah. Artists. 
Yeah. So I'm writing right now, the circus side of things is far ahead of the improv side of things, but I use um, a lot of interpersonal neurobiology, sometimes called relational neuroscience to kind of underpin all of the work that I do, both therapeutically and in both of these domains. And so I have a series that I'm about four blogs deep that is kind of circus and understandable interpersonal neurobiology that kind of explains why circus works and what what that's all about. And then uh, I'm one blog deep on improv. I wrote a blog, blog on um, improv and polyvagal theory. And yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying writing about those pieces and kind of figuring out what the next layer of things that I'll be moving into in my life. And yeah. Why don't we explain, you explain polyvagal theory. So for listeners who may not be uh, familiar with that term. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's, there's a, I mean, we could spend hours explaining all of the sort of depth of it, but I'll explain it just sort of the brief summary version. Um, So most people think of our nervous system and they think of parasympathetic and the sympathetic division where which is what kind of generally most of us are traditionally taught is that we have the sympathetic system to activate us to mobilize us during a flight or flight situation that you know gives us extra extra blood flow to our muscles extra ability to run really fast to be really strong and puts kind of the non-essential things on hold so digestion we don't need that if we're running for our lives so digestion's going to just hang out and pause for a minute when the sympathetic system activates then what we're originally taught is that the parasympathetic system is sort of the counterbalance to that sympathetic system and brings us back into kind of homeostasis once the threat has passed. And so there's sort of this ebb and flow of sympathetic and parasympathetic that we experience throughout our lives. And basically, uh, Stephen Porges, who kind of discovered and came up and reported the polyvagal theory, expanded that out further and helped us understand that the parasympathetic system is not just a system that kind of brings us down from the sympathetic piece, but is, is it kind of has dual plate function of it, it is both the system that's activating if we are in kind of the super shutdown place or have deactivated to a certain extent. And it's also the part of us that helps us activate our social engagement system, which is the part of us that is present when we're the healthiest, the happiest, the most connected, the most tuned in, the most plugged in with other people. So if we are in a good space and we're having a good conversation and we're just, we're comfortable, we're relaxed, we're having a good time, that is when we're going to be in that social engagement system, the ventral vagal uh, piece. Deb Dana, who's a therapist kind of hypothesized this as a ladder, which I think is a really great analogy and kind of looked at like at the top of the ladder, we're in that kind of ventral vagal social engagement, like we're plugged in, we're connected. And then if something happens, we slide down, we go into that sympathetic system. We're a little bit activated. If things continue, we're going to slide down into that dorsal vagal place, the really kind of shut down uh, place. And I think a couple of things that are really important to note is that our the way that we move through this system is based on survival. Like our body is driven 100% more than anything based on survival. And so a lot of the things that we do are adaptive in terms of survival, but are not necessarily productive for us in the current life that we're living. And so I think that sometimes figuring out like, what it is that's um, that's happening and why it's happening is really important because we design we develop 
sort of our various ways of moving through this and our nervous system responds neuroceptively, which means kind of subconsciously below our conscious level. Our nervous system is picking up things all around us and collecting that information to change how we physiologically respond to things, which means that the experiences we've had have shaped kind of our nervous systems functioning overall. Um, yeah, I can keep talking about that for a long time, but, the, but that's a, a little baseline introduction. Okay, and how do you apply that with your work? Can you make a connection between that and the work that you're doing? Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that, I think a couple things are key is that we do all have our sort of status quo, what our normal way of moving through the world is. And I think both within improv and circus and with just general therapy as well, part of what happens is that we bring and invite awareness to the way that we're moving through the world. So we come to, experience and feel and understand more about what is happening for me, like what is going on in my system. And we get these kind of repetitive opportunities to calibrate and to understand like, okay, I physiologically had this response to this thing. And now I get to sort of see, assess, view, understand, is that, is that the response that was sort of the like, quote unquote, right response here? Like, did that response actually help me or was that my system kind of neuroceptively engaging in a response before I was able to kind of process that intellectually? So one, I think it really brings a lot of awareness to things. And two, when we look at kind of expanding our window of tolerance and expanding outside of what, what our sort of current framework is, play is one of the best ways for us to do that because it is a function that inherently moves us kind of back and forth between the social engagement system and also into like a slight sympathetic activation that is tolerable and within the framework of like, okay, I'm comfortable, I'm okay here, but it gives us some of those opportunities to like move through that in a way that is really reinforcing and that helps us to better understand and kind of integrate those pieces later. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And when you talked about your work in trauma, I, this is just an aside. Did you, have you done EMDR at all? Uh, I am not trained in EMDR. Um, I'm quite familiar with it and do a lot with kind of proprioceptive and vestibular systems and those kinds of things. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people are absolutely for using EMDR. I'm not trained and I don't use it, mm -hmm. um, but I experienced it. So mm -hmm. you know, I have my own personal mm -hmm. views on it um so let's talk about what what's in the future in the next in coming winter what's some uh, plans you have are you speaking anywhere what's going on with you Lacey yeah sure um I'm definitely really excited about the connect improv curriculum coming out because I think that'll be a really nice just a nice way to share more of this information and this these frameworks um, so that's really exciting. I'm going to Illinois in uh, early December to do a training at a med school there. So I'm excited about yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, I've just got lots of lots of lots of smaller things brewing, and yeah. And are you involved in the improv community in Montreal? Uh, yeah, I was actually the education director of the theater here for a while. I'm not doing that at this moment because I just only have so much time in the day. Um, yeah. Yeah, I teach at the school here and 
What school is that? Montreal Improv. Okay, great. Wonderful. Yeah, I know there's a lot of, in Toronto has a lot of wonderful improvisers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, you talked about your background being an influence on you. Mm -hmm. And I think that can really motivate us, the experiences of our childhood and teenage years, to want to help somebody that was like us, kind of. That makes sense. And mm-hmm. you're really doing that, although you're not a neurodivergent person, but mm-hmm. you're divergent in your own way. Mm-hmm. So um, do you have any more plans for starting class, doing specific classes uh, with kids or adults with autism? There's, a, there's more emphasis on the kids with autism. And I think the adults with autism sometimes get left out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely in... In Montreal, I don't have anything lined up like at this moment that's like a next course series launching. Um, I do do a lot of kind of individual classes with some of the schools that are here. Um, As you maybe know, Montreal is heavily francophone, so French is the primary language here. Um, And there are also a lot of Anglophones or people that speak English as well. but that kind of creates a different, unique uh, landscape. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing here. Uh, I totally lost my train of thought. I don't remember where I was going. Um, but yeah, so I do individual uh, programming and classes and workshops here, but don't have any sustained classes right now going on. Um, and then like last summer as well, went to some summer programming and camps that serve specialized youth and ran programming there. Um, yeah. And then Camp Sand will happen this year and yeah, things kind of continue to unfold. And yeah, I definitely think that I bring a lot of these individual pieces into the work that I do. And I actually do identify as neurodiverse. Um, yeah. So yeah, both of those pieces. Whether it's with business or kids or schools or medical or therapists, it's bringing people together and helping them connect. And I think one of the things I love as a teacher is by the end of the class, the connections they have made with each other, mm-hmm. whether they see each other ever again or not, isn't as important as the way they feel that some of the, tender things they'll say to each other at the end of a class is really beautiful, mm-hmm. I think. So, um, yeah, yeah, I definitely, I do feel like that is kind of the underpinning of the work that I'm doing and sort of the fundamental pieces of that, of like whether or not you are, you know, in a business corporate setting, which I do a lot of different corporate trainings and have those kind of over the next couple of months, or whether you're, you know, a parent who's connecting with a kid or in a theater class or a circus class, whether or not you're connected with someone, whether or not you can build that relationship, that is ultimately often the deciding factor of how well things go. Because I really do feel like it is, rapport is the place that like everything is built, you know, like, and, and I think that that is one of the, the gifts that improv brings and gives is that it facilitates connection it facilitates joining it facilitates rapport development in a way that is really accessible to everybody well it's been delightful speaking with you today Lacey you have just really accomplished so much in a relatively short time I know there's years that you've been spending training and practicing 
but it's just really exciting where the field is going, where applied improv mm -hmm. is going. And I'm hoping we can all get together, those of us who are working kind of in the applied improv fields therapeutically and get together and talk and maybe have a webinar sometime that we can put out together. I think that'd be fun. And cool. uh, I, I just so appreciate your kindness and what you're doing to make the world a better place. So Lacey, I, I just love you and keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you so much.